everybody. Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 13th of March 2014, and I'm very, very pleased to be able to welcome to the program Beverly Ekman. Now, Beverly Ekman is an international human rights award winner, a veteran educator, science writer, former Washington political speechwriter, and the author of several books, a number of which expose ideological manipulation of the education system in the US, which has gained her the reputation as education's whistleblower. And these will be books such as Cloning of the American Mind, Walking Targets, and most recently, Pushback, How to Take a Stand Against Groupthink, Bullies, Agitators and Professional Manipulators, which I hope we shall have an opportunity to speak about uh, later on in our discussion. And she's lectured across the US and has been a guest on more than an astounding 700 talk shows. And I suppose this is another one. So I guess that makes it more than 701 talk shows. <laughs> Um, so let me say, Beverly, uh, thank you ever so much indeed for joining us today. It's very good of you to come on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, I became aware of your work through Michael Shaw, the president of Freedom Advocates, and he was on this program last year talking about the dangers of Agenda 21. And he mentioned your name to me as somebody who's been working for many years to try and empower people to resist various manipulative techniques of uh, so-called consensus building situations, uh, like public consultation context, education context. And uh, in fact, he called you an expert in uh, consensus busting. Uh, I've been listening to some of your interviews and lectures on the internet, and uh, I was very interested in what you had to say, because a lot of it I found very, very reminiscent of my own experience of ministerial training with the Methodist Church, uh, which I was extremely unhappy about, and I'm hoping I should get an opportunity to share some of that with you during the conversation. But first, Obviously, I've said a little bit about you in the introduction, but there's much, much more that needs to be said about what you've done over the years and how that's fed into all that you're doing now. So could you tell us a bit more about your background and how you came to this work that has earned you that reputation as education's whistleblower? Well, I started out as a teacher and I noticed during my teacher education process in college that all did not seem quite on the up and up. Most of it was educational psychology. Nobody seemed to care whether we knew the value of X uh, or anything about any particular piece of subject matter, even our specialty. And I kind of wondered about that. One of the professors that first came into an educational psychology class that I was in, uh, he walked in and he drew some concentric circles on the chalkboard, then put a bullseye in the middle. And then he looked at us and tapped all these circles, concentric circles, and said, family, religion, friends, neighbors, community, all of that is superfluous. And then he tapped the bullseye and he said, ego, that's the only thing that matters. The first thing you kids need to know is there's no such thing as common sense. Well, that sort of, you know, started me off. But mind you, I'm 19 and, you know, I'm away from home for the first time. So, you know, a lot of that seemed very smart to many of my colleagues in the classroom. But since I was majoring in education, that didn't seem particularly smart to me. Yeah, you, you really must have wondered what was going on. It seems quite did. off the wall. I might have expected it if it had been Berkeley or someplace like that. But at the time, I was in Texas. And I certainly didn't expect it in Texas because it wasn't that kind of a place. And so I thought, what in the world are they hiring out here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I am a native Washingtonian. I was born and raised here, and I just really went away for a little while to Texas, then uh, went to California, and then back. Uh, I went to Houston for a while with the space program with my husband, and I became editor-in-chief of NASA's newspaper, uh, among other things, and a scientific writer, which I certainly never expected because I got out of the education field real quick when I saw was what was going on in the classroom. Yeah. And then once back in D.C., I started working for The Voice of America. I became chief speechwriter for the director there. 
and then the Commission of the, on the Bicentennial of the U.S. Constitution, which was chaired by Chief Justice Warren Burger, who had just stepped down from the court, uh, supposedly to retire, but he took this chairmanship for a while, and I became his speechwriter. And then I started becoming a writer for the Department of Justice. But all the while, I thought I had left education behind, thank goodness, and it never left me, unfortunately. So I started really looking at education because I kept getting so much mail about my experiences that I had talked to people about. And, you know, such as the one that I started off at the top of the show. And I ran in accidentally to a colleague on Capitol Hill that had been in the same room as a lady who dumped a suitcase full of phony tests on the desk of Senator Arlen Specter. He looked at these things, had no idea what they were, but the so-called tests were testing their opinions. And there was no right or wrong answer, only preferred or non-preferred answers. And he didn't know what to say. And so he started writing letters to the state departments of education. Now, those are kind of clones, you might say, of the um, U.S. Department of Education. Uh, Even back in the day of the old Office of Education under Health, Education, and Welfare, they still had state education agencies, and they got passed through money from the federal government. Well, they each started blaming each other for this mess, and this parent was really on the ball, and she got together a bunch of other parents who were complaining And so, you know, I kind of got curious, like a dog with a bone, I wouldn't let it go. Was this in the state of Pennsylvania? Well, the tests were uh, at the time, and only to find out that it was all over the place, and nobody knew it, including Senator Arlen Specter. And did you say that there was also profiling of students going on? That was the beginning of it. Uh It was only 1981, I think, that I first got wind of it. And uh, I think 82, she dumped it on his desk. And and then it started going great guns once somebody at Utah's World Institute of Computer-Assisted Technology began figuring out how to link federal, state, and local computer systems. And I found out that an agency, well, it was a quasi-agency at the time, it had part private money and part federal money, called the Council of Chief State School Officers. They were tasked by the federal government with ensuring that all the computers at the state and local level were compatible with the federal government's computers. Well, of course, a lot of the state and local agencies said, I'm sorry, we can't afford this whereupon they were told, oh, well, the federal government will be happy to loan you some money or even give you some money. They said, well, okay. And of course, pretty soon they were hooked on that money because strings came with it. And pretty soon they all had to play the same tune, getting data from students that were personal and political, also with with their family background and Lots of questions like, do you have a ruler or a thesaurus in your house? Uh, What magazines do you subscribe to? Things like that. Uh, Or do your parents subscribe to? They wanted to know a lot of things. And, of course, it was called sociodemographic questions, but that was the first thing they saw. Then they were told it was confidential. Well, most parents, most everybody, thinks confidential means anonymous. It does not It means need to know in a legal context. And so that these schools were actually extracting information from the students, as you say, through what looked like tests. But in fact, they were questionnaires to gain information. That's exactly right. And it was done very surreptitiously, kind of underhandedly. Let's put it that way. And pretty soon they were hooked. They had to do it. You know, it wasn't 10 years before 
it was a necessity to do it if you wanted to keep getting this lovely federal money. Mm. It does sound incredibly intimidating. And uh, I wonder whether that is behind your quote, which I, I think it's – you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong – that it's from uh, your first book. It's a quote that I heard a number of times in interviews that you did, and I, I'll just uh, put it to you. When it becomes possible via technology to track and legislate private opinions and even to classify those who don't conform as having mental illnesses, then we have left the realm of politics and are talking about a type of coercion, psychological coercion. Pragmatism and expediency necessarily become substitutes for independent thought. And presto, psychopolitics is a fait accompli. Is that quote there, which I say I've heard many times uh, in, in your interviews, are you summing up that whole situation that people are giving away private information and then that has a psychological effect? Yes, that, that's a perfect summation of what has happened. And I really just expanded upon that quote ever since in all my talks, books, and subsequent articles, because that is exactly what has happened to the point where younger people that are under 30 or 35 don't see anything wrong with divulging such information. You know, if our parents had had somebody come into their home and said, gee, that's a lovely couch, how much did you pay for it? They would have been horrified. That would have been rude. That would have been unacceptable. But look at the kinds of information that are being shared now freely over things like Facebook and all the other social media that exist. Yeah. Um, even in teen magazines, they are filling out questionnaires that seem sort of silly. And so they tear this out and they, they're encouraged to send it in to the magazine. And they say, oh, the results are totally confidential. What they don't see on the bottom is the barcode. And it is absolutely astonishing the way people do give up their personal information. And I mean, it must be pretty well known now that um, things like Facebook are actually well attached to the you know, security establishment over there in the US. And, uh, you know, the, what's been yeah. that you're de describing here that's been going on in education seems like a kind of foreshadowing of uh, what has been revealed fairly recently with the NSA. Exactly. That, in fact, that's what uh, this last book, uh, you know, uh, kind of pulls it all together in that context, because that's exactly what happened. First, people are horrified or maybe they tell their children if, if the children even tell them what some of the questions are. And maybe they and they did at first. They, they actually did. Uh, this one woman in the book that I wrote first, the one that uh, educating for the new world order, uh, actually told his mother what some of the questions were. And he says, there's no way I could study for a test like this. But after that, everybody had a computer and the test came over the computer and uh, that came so fast, the questions that the child couldn't even keep up with them to remember them by the time he got home. And the result of that all together with an increasing media that made intimate information the stuff of titillation so that people would tune into the program, you know, like uh, the Ricky Lake program here. I don't know if you had that here and Jerry Springer and Oprah and all the rest of them to the point where no children were not bothered by the lack of privacy anymore. They didn't know what was private and what wasn't. And that's really your first step towards something like the NSA has because people no longer complain. Okay, I also want to ask you about uh, some of the other concerns that you have, because you have talked very much about the way in which education as a whole has moved methodologically uh, and has changed really from what it used to be in many ways. And uh, here I'm thinking about different learning styles, different um, the teacher functioning in a different way, uh, not as perhaps the classical teacher you'd expect standing up and uh, get, you know imparting facts, but operating in a slightly well concerning way and a sort of manipulative way. So I want to ask you about the way in which you feel the education system has changed over the years and why that should be of such a concern to us? Well, you know, it isn't so much that the idea of being hands-on with uh, some students isn't a good idea. That was one of the things that John Dewey came up with that was halfway decent. But mm -hmm. what you don't want is no transmission of facts, of factual knowledge. 
they are putting in any old factoids. That's what it's called over here in the U.S. A factoid is something that stands in for a fact. It might be halfway factual up to a point. In other words, there's a kernel of truth, but then the rest is not. And what they're after really are a child's gut reactions. They're first impression of things. And that is not what education is about. It's about transmission of knowledge, a common body of knowledge, if you will, that pulls people together and creates some sort of loyalty to values, to ideals. And this isn't happening anymore because now it is about feelings and psychology, which is to say affective, and that's not effective, but affective domain. That's the technical term for it. So education has changed in that respect, and they are not even looking at the real things kids need to know to succeed in school, such as like auditory memory uh, and a visual memory and spatial orientation of some sort. Uh, otherwise, he can't understand abstract concepts. Without an auditory memory, he can't remember what he hears. Without a visual memory, the things he sees just go out the window and so on and so forth. But there are ways to actually uh, increase those things Teachers used to do them without even realizing it, but now they don't anymore. Uh, for example, I can remember in first grade sitting in a row with other students and the teacher says, okay, you go to a zoo. What do you see at the zoo? And the first child says, I went to the zoo and I saw a giraffe. Okay, the next child says, I went to the zoo and I saw a giraffe and a bear. And the next student says, I went to the zoo and I saw a giraffe, a bear, and a, an alligator. So, you know, this was increasing their auditory uh, awareness and their auditory memory. We don't do that anymore. Instead, we are focusing on a person's attitudes, worldviews, and outlooks their belief system. They're using slogans and catchphrases to redefine terms people thought they always knew, but mm. obviously don't anymore. Yes, indeed. And you make a, a great deal of this attempt to change children's own, and indeed adults' worldview, and that education seems to be very much more geared to that kind of thing. And I do want to ask you about some of the techniques that seem to be used. But before I ask you about that, I think it needs to be addressed as to why this is happening. I mean, who is doing this? What, how come these influences have managed to get into the education system? Who's responsible for this? Well, mainly it is a, a leftist thing. I mean, it started in 19, before 1919, really, uh, and Lenin's uh, Bolshevik revolution. There have always been people, even in the United States, who never really believed in freedom, who never believed in the liberty of the individual man and woman. They honestly believed that unless people were regimented and controlled and scared half out of their wits, they would devolve into mob rule and they would be a danger to themselves and each other. I'm sure you've heard that phrase. And they would take down the whole system, including the elites. Mm -hmm. And that's what the founders of our country came over here really to get away from more than anything else. I mean, yes, there was uh, the Revolutionary War that, you know, separated itself from Great Britain, as you know. But the thing they really came over here to get away from was this idea that people needed to be regimented and controlled and scared half out of their wits. And Thomas Jefferson even wrote that if you give the common man the facts, he will always act wisely. Well, uh, that is completely the opposite of the way many people thought. And there was a lot of argument at the time when we were hashing out the Constitution. And we wound up with, as Benjamin Franklin said at the end of the Constitutional uh, Convention that they had uh, to, you know, get us a form of government that, well, you have a republic if you can keep it. 
And so there was a lot of argument about this issue. Some people thought we needed a king and that sort of thing. And then there was the Thomas Jeffersons and that branch that thought, no, people can govern themselves if you have a form of government that lends itself to that and looks at the best in human nature, not the worst. Well, now we've got the opposite back again. We're looking at the worst of human nature and all of domestic policy is focused on the worst things people do instead of the best things people do. So this is to try and uh, sort of pinpoint the essence of what you're saying there. Really, this is all coming from a totalitarian impulse. Yes. And this is one thing that Dean Gotcha said that he felt that this impulse was coming very much through social theory with the Frankfurt School and people like Herbert Marcuse and Eric Fromm, he mentioned particularly, sort of neo-Marxist ideas, and that these had very much influenced the um, educational system. Uh, I would agree with that 100%. The Frankfurt School, in fact, was very influential in giving us the kind of education system we have now. What people don't understand quite is that the Nazis and the communists really were two sides of the same coin. It's a mistake to say right wing and left wing, as the liberal press likes to do. It's two facets of the same coin. I mean, the Nazis might line you up and shoot you, but the communists wanted to infiltrate. They just came at it at a little different angle, but the end result really was the same. In fact, often people forget that Nazis, of course, stands for National Socialists. And uh, so the communists would, of course, say they are socialists per excellence. And so, yeah, indeed, it's both the same thing approached in different ways. In fact, um, we've talked about this quite a few times on the podcast. And uh, really, it's all summed up by the doctrine of collectivism, isn't it? It's the idea that the individual is subordinate to the state or the community in some way. Well, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. We are actually assimilating that in the United States. When you talk about redistribution of wealth, which is what the education system really is trying to purvey uh, these days, uh, mostly above everything else, uh, and then the political system too, by the way, people would not say from each according to his ability to each according to his need. In fact, many won't, don't even realize that Karl Marx, Karl Marx said it. But that is what they are uh, now focusing on. That is how they are behaving. That is how they are thinking. So do you feel this is why many of these moves in education seem to be trying to break down many of the traditional categories which have defined us in the past so that now we find that education seems to be anti-authority, anti-morality, the sexual revolution is something that's embraced, it's anti-family, you know, there's enlightened atheism, these sorts of things. Do you think they're coming from that infiltration? Yes, to an extent. A lot of the things that you just listed there are methods of deculturization, which um, uh, Stalin perfected, really. He, he perfected that process. So the all the antis <laughs> that you named um, are really a method of changing the ideals that seem to be American or even uh, ideals of freedom anywhere in the free world. Um, They want to break those down first so that then they can reconstitute, build a new ideal. And that is, of course, very, very Stalinesque. And of course, that will lead us in the conversation to the new world order, of course, because that is that is the end game that is in view, whatever that will actually turn out to be in the end. Or well, let's hope it won't turn out to be in the end. But nevertheless, that is the that's the goal, isn't it? Um, I wanted to ask you more detail about some of the techniques and the steps that uh, are involved in these kinds of educational systems. And you talk about the five steps to indoctrination in your lectures and interviews. And um, you say that these are regularly used in school systems to try and bring about a change in students' worldview. And the first of the five steps that you point to is sweeping away the students' normal support base, such things as the family, you know, or the authority figure of the the minister at the church, these kinds of things. But you mentioned five of these. Could you talk us through those five steps to indoctrination? 
Uh, yes. First, as you say, is sweeping away the person's uh, or child's support base. And that's the person's intellectual, especially a child's um, intellectual and emotional life raft. Every child needs one of those. And if you sweep that away, then he's kind of left in this no man's land. And undermining parents is a favorite method of yanking the rug out from under children. Mm. And then you bombard the person's senses with a steady diet of conflicting, contradictory, and confusing images and words. Uh, on the major TV news media does this spectacularly in order to discourage reflection. So when you keep seeing six-minute segments interrupted by umpteen commercials, this is a way of making sure that people cannot sustain a train of thought. Mm. And once they can no longer sustain a train of thought, that means they become unaccustomed to thinking anything through. And of course, that's what they want. So the result is a vacuum where the belief system used to be. And then once that vacuum has been created, leaving the child vulnerable and impressionable, the technical term for that is willing to receive stimuli. And you'll see that in professional papers. Then you lead the person to desired ideas, concepts and beliefs via trained intermediaries such as facilitators, clinicians, change agents, agitators, marketing gimmicks. For example, when you listen to the TV now, uh, commercials, they don't say husband and wife. Your commercials say partner. Now, that's not a big thing, just a small thing. Well, indeed, we have the ridiculous situation over here in the UK where the present government is messing around with exactly those terms, husband and wife. That's right. Indeed. That, that, well, you've, you, again, that's kind yeah. of, yeah. You, you've kind of gone back to the first thing of sweeping away the intellectual and emotional life raft that most children depend on or mm -hmm. most people depend on. In other words, your home is your castle. It's where you hang your hat. You know, it's known. It, it, it's, it's stable. But these people don't want stability. Now, would you say that uh, I'm mean, just thinking off the top of my head of an example that might happen in school, as you know, I'm a teacher. So, you know, these sorts of things are crop up every now and again, where you hear somebody say something like to the students, you know, well, you know, think for yourself. Um, you may have been taught such and such at home. But, you know, now, what do you think now? And of course, that's OK. One should think about various things. But there are certain ways of putting it in which you know, it can be implied that, well, you know, older generations think such and such. And we've moved on now. And these sorts of little key words that are put in there that can sort of feed into the the arrogance and the pride of a young person or anybody really and make them feel that oh yes i should challenge authority and that can have the effect of well i, I would with you agree of, of sweeping away or encouraging that sweeping away of authority that actually should be there yes exactly um it's called technically what you're referring to is called cognitive dissonance there's whole books written on that but you know you'd have to go into a psychology library to find them and <laughs> What it does is, to the child anyway, is make him feel more knowledgeable than what he really is. In other words, it's an ego booster. Remember that uh, psychology professor who said ego, that's the center of the universe, that's the most important thing? Well, what you've done is to stroke yeah. the ego of the child when you say, well, you know your parents are from a different generation, you can make up your own mind, and the child is only 10 or so, you've also done one other thing by that. Guess who the new authority is? Not yourself, your peers. So you have a bunch of 10-year-olds who are the authorities to other 10-year-olds. The authority figures have changed from the adults in your life to children. You remember Goldsmith, I think his name was, Lord of the Flies? Yeah, that very, very disturbing piece of writing indeed, but very true. Yeah, and and it's interesting that what's happened there, though, is that there's nothing, there's no real logical argument that's taken place. Just because parents, you know, of a different generation says absolutely nothing about the truth or falsity of what they believe. It, just using a, a sort of progressivist term like that just connotes 
that the parents must be wrong because they're of another generation. But that's no argument whatsoever. So it's all very specious. It's very specious. And not only that, children then do not have any qualms or many qualms anyway about uh, divulging information about their parents, reporting on their parents. Do your parents drink wine? Well, so what? But they will put down uh, wine with every meal or something like that. And if you have the right behavioral analyst, the, the behavioral analyst can decide that that is indicative of a drunk if he so desires. It's amazing how these little things can be quite manipulative, can't they, and, and change the perception of the student if they're, if they're done in a clever way. That, that is very, very interesting. Could I move on to the second one where you talk about confusing images and confusing concepts? Now, I want to share with you something which I experienced on that ministerial training which I told you about. I did a couple of years of that and I, I chucked it in eventually because I just couldn't, I couldn't bear any more of it the way we were being manipulated. And one of the things which we were told is that there are no facts there are just interpretations ah and this he sourced the origin of this idea by mentioning immanuel kant and he brought up the famous distinction between phenomena and noumena you know phenomena the things that, as we perceive them and noumena things as they are in themselves and of course we haven't got access to things as they are in themselves we we just have things as we perceive them and so he was saying well there are no facts then we're all just individuals perceiving things in different ways and so therefore we can't really judge anybody else's views on everything we have to accept everybody's views as right that was basically the message that was coming over now that, I thought, as soon as you talked about confusing images and confusing concepts, I thought that's exactly the sort of thing that was going on in that room. It was very, very confusing. Well, th that's it exactly. And in fact, do you know that there is a whole course of study or a, a profession called perception management? And you can find it on the Department of Defense's website. I'm, I'm not kidding. <laughs> so this is a warfare technique, psychological warfare. Right. Mm -hmm. This is a, a, a technique of psych war or part of political psychology. And yes, there is a course of study called psychopolitics now. It's at George Washington University here in the, the Washington, D.C. I mean, there's plenty of colleges and universities that have such a degree program. So things have changed in that not enough people are balking against this sort of thing. They're taking it in stride. But the idea is you uh, accept everybody's opinions or perceptions. Everything is per about perception. And it's very funny because I just ran across a quote, and this is from an atheist author, Richard Dawkins, everybody probably remembers. And he actually said once, however... Oh, yes, we must be non-judgmental. By all means, be non-judgmental, but not so non-judgmental that we let our brains drop out. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And, and in fact, I, I thought that this kind of technique actually changes reason and thinking into bigotry. So easily. So you're sitting there and you think, well, I, I don't agree yes. with such and such. I really do think that, you know, A is A. It's not non-A. You know, it, this is so. And of course, then you're looked upon by everybody else in the group as somebody who is not accepting of other people's opinions. Even though you may, you may well consider other people's opinions and reach a different conclusion. No, no, that's not good enough. You're not accepting and therefore you're a bigot. It's turned reason into bigotry. Well, there's whole books based on that. Um, Chris Mooney wrote The Republican Brain. Now, he didn't mean Republican as Republican Party. He meant conservative, traditionalist, even independent. And he said that liberals are much more open and courageous and optimistic, whereas the conservative is rigid and uh, dogmatic and inflexible. And these were identified with mental illness. Well, where were the liberal mental illnesses? Well, apparently couldn't find any. And this is actually one of the criticisms against the social theorists that we were talking about earlier, that they tended to do exactly that and accuse people of mental illness when they didn't agree with them. <laughs> that's right. But that's what the Soviets did. And we mm. know what the result of that was. Indeed. Um, 
you also say about repetitious exposure to what the uh, the, the, the teacher, whoever this person is who's uh, organizing the course, wants the child to believe. Uh, there is this repetition across the curriculum as well. So this is reinforcing various messages. Would that be, say, um, in, in various disciplines? So in a maths lesson, in an English lesson, in a history lesson, you might yes. have the same kinds of things being reinforced across the curriculum? Yes, uh, it's interspersing and uh, identifying things across the spectrum in every course. In other words, give it as many formats as possible, and pretty soon children will believe it because they've seen it in so many different formats. And uh, you redefine terms. Uh, For example, the public misinterprets Terms like modifying behavior, targeting attitudes, and outcomes. And most people assume that behavior means conduct, that attitude means temperament, that outcomes mean results. Well, it doesn't. The jargon of psychology says that modifying behavior means altering beliefs. Attitude means viewpoint, and outcomes are the politically reliable, ingrained gut reactions that are supposed to become second nature by the time a child leaves school. Mm -hmm. So these things are all geared towards some kind of change of worldview. And the last component, you say, tests that. Ah. There's some form of testing that takes place to actually check that the student has actually moved from A to B. Well, it isn't called a test anymore because that was getting them in trouble. Ralph Tyler, that uh, was the guru, he died in 1994, but he was the guru of this sort of testing that incorporated uh, psychological concepts and viewpoints and personal questions and so on. He was the real pioneer in that field, him and Richard Wolff and Francis Keppel and there's several others. And what they did was change the word test to assessment. So you always hear now state assessment test. Sometimes they'll say test, but usually they'll leave the term test off of it. They'll say assessment all the time. And most people don't realize the uh, implications of that. But if you look it up, on the National Center for Education Statistics, which is probably the most important sub-agency within the U.S. Department of Education. It gives a very good overview that proves that they all know in government circles what the difference between an assessment and a test is. In fact, one of the PowerPoint slides I always put up has about six or seven or so quotes from the National Center for Education Statistics or one of the labs and centers, education labs and centers, to say there is a difference between an assessment and a test and what they are doing is assessing. So would you say that the assessment is more geared then towards finding out how much you've changed in the way you're looking at the world rather than testing your knowledge and understanding? Absolutely. And in the newest version, which is a closed loop interactive mode on the computer. Remember, every classroom now is being outfitted with uh, tablets and computers for every child. Well, the idea is that parents can't get in and they can't see what the child is seeing. So what happens is they can compare how a child believed in fifth grade and his parents' viewpoints, for, uh, as far as that goes, from how he believes in the 11th grade. Mm. And if certain things that they consider important politically haven't changed enough, then they bring in harder-hitting curriculum to change those attitudes. So you go back through the five steps all over again in a different way. That's right. I'd like to come to another issue, really. It's very much related to what you've been talking about, uh, but I think it has perhaps greater application to adult education, although I'm quite sure it also applies in 
situations with children as well. And that is the main strategy that you often talk about, where you have the group situation and the facilitator or the moderator, or you call this person the provocateur as well, who um, comes into the situation not as the classical teacher, but somebody who is deliberately exploiting the peer pressure within the group. Could you explain how that works and how we can recognize it? Well, there are giveaway lines that uh, a manipulator usually uses. Now, when, when it's with children, it's not so easily seen because, well, you're supposed to more or less obey the teacher. I mean, if the teacher's your pal. He's your mentor. He's your coach. Many times they, they, they put it that way, coaching the student instead of uh, teaching him. Uh, they don't call it instructing the student. They never say that anymore. But mm. what they do is try to create a we're all in this together mentality. And if we're all in this together, then we all must save each other's skin. And therefore, everybody helps each other and nobody excels and nobody flunks. Nobody fails, but nobody succeeds. And that lays the groundwork for a whole different approach than we had under a, liber uh, under a liberty uh, mm. mindset. So what does the facilitator do then when he or she comes into the group? Um, what kind of persona do they exude and, and then what do they actually do with the group? Well, they start out by being everybody's pal and buddy, but they quickly, and they're taught to, deduce where everybody is on the spectrum of ideas. In other words, this person is hired by somebody. The man, it's a, a manipulator. And he or she is hired by somebody to change attitudes in a particular way. And pretty soon, this person learns how everybody is thinking, whether it, it, this person is in their camp or they're not. And so one of the things he's trying to find out is, does the child uh, think for himself, uh, how is he motivated? Does he motivate himself or does he need somebody from the outside, like his parents or friends, to motivate him? Will the child conform to group goals? And there's little things or discussion questions. They throw out class discussions or even surveys that will give that, if you want to call it a teacher, it's a, a facilitator or a mentor or coach, um, they let them know which child is going to be which. And what they do is to turn groups against each other. They want to intimidate the child by letting the group do the dirty work. That's the first thing everybody has to remember. It's easier to control a group than it is to control a single individual, which seems very opposite from what reality is, but it, it's not. And even Sun Tzu in the art of war back in uh, 476 BC knew that that was true. Yeah, indeed. And as, as I said before, I did experience that on the course that I was talking about. And there were various peer pressure factors that were very, very powerful. They didn't actually manage to change my mind. And this is why in many ways I stuck out like a sore thumb. But I, mean, so I had a very, very difficult time because I was subject. I was I felt ostracized. Um, I was clearly ridiculed at time. You know, if I would if I was to say, well, I know I believe such and such, I would you know, be raised eyebrows, there would be muttering and these kind, extremely difficult right. to deal with. But uh, I mean, in many cases, I just shut up eventually. And of course, that to some extent, I suppose that was the system working upon me. But it was all based upon this peer pressure, which looking back at it, it seemed deliberately controlled in order to sort of create a, yes. well, I call it a consensus, but is it a real consensus? Well, what happens is that if you can establish a we're all in this together mentality, then what will happen eventually is people will band together to save themselves the embarrassment of being rejected. And this is especially true in America because in America, um, I don't know how it is for sure in Britain, but in America, 
we have been raised since grade school years to think that our popularity and status is the most important thing. It's more important than anything else. And uh, even Karl Marx said in his theory of alienation that people will do just about anything to avoid ostracism and ridicule. And he was right. Yes, it's more important for us to be liked than to be right, isn't it? Yes, Absolutely. Exactly. It's more important to be liked than to be right. Oh. And so that is what has happened to the child. And by the time the teenage years kick in, of course, uh, it becomes even more difficult to have these raised eyebrows, as you say. And, and people, well, they will just simply distance themselves from the person who is outspoken. Mm. Now, now. Consider, in the 60s, you had these conscientious objectors and hippies and protesters and so on. Only about 40 years ago, that has all changed. Now nobody wants to stand out. And I'm not saying that the hippies and the protesters or so on were good and, and had uh, good ideas. I, I, I took issue with much of that. But the point is the mindset has changed from that to we all must think alike. Absolutely. And this is one of the things we've talked about a lot on this particular program, and that is the misuse of the term conspiracy theorist, which is just one of those put downs, which everybody wants to avoid being associated with that, you know. Uh, but, right. but of course, you know, we have to be free in order to think about such things, because of course, there are conspiracies of various things around. And it's up to us to take those on a case by case basis and you know investigate the justification for believing such things, but not just to respond with fear to being labeled in such a way. Um, I think that's a very, very powerful tool that's out there, as it were, in public space. And I think we need to be very much aware of that. Um, One of the things that I found fascinating about my own experience was that when I was in these group sessions and everybody, it seemed anyway to me, you know, was going along with whatever the consensus was supposed to be. And I was the one who was saying, no, I think such and such. After the session, perhaps over a cup of coffee, Occasionally, somebody would say, oh, well, I did actually agree with you. I, I, yeah. And so the consensus was actually a fake consensus. Yes, a phony consensus. That's what I call it. It's a phony consensus. And I can't tell you how many times I have received a phone call from somebody somewhere. I don't even know the person. And they say, you know, I was just I just realized I was victimized in this meeting, this committee meeting. And I voted for the very thing I came to vote against. And I don't see how that could have happened. But only an hour or maybe a day later do they realize they were had. And this is happening all over the country. And it doesn't matter what the subject is. It can be anything from uh, climate change to carbon taxes to, uh, you know, anything. It could be anything that you could possibly put on uh, a label. Yeah, it's incredible how powerful it is and how pervasive it is. And one of the things you talk about is uh, various techniques like distraction and labeling people and the use of buzzwords. I mean, distraction is one thing that I was um, reflecting upon my experience again. And I was I remembered one particular case where we were being told some rather strange things and as we were being told those strange things some pieces of paper were being handed out and we were told to write something or other on these pieces of paper at the same time and i thought i looking back at it now i think that was really really odd why were we doing that and but listening to what you were saying in one of your lectures you were saying that was a, quite possibly a deliberate technique in order to take your eye off what was being taught at that moment let it sink in uh, subliminally really that's right you cannot think while you're writing or a lot of people can, some people can, but most people going into a meeting and being asked something like, what's the first thing that pops into your head when I say, you know, whatever it is, and they'll use some label or some stereotype or some uh, terminology that is supposed to be a red flag. Well, when you are writing down these things or calling out something because you want to be cooperative, you want to participate, well, why must you participate? Who told you you had to participate? That's another thing. Of Everybody wants to seem upbeat and, you know, involved. You don't want to be seen as a person that sits there with their arms folded and doesn't participate. That's a sociopath, right? 
Yeah, sure. And these are good motivations, really. And this is all this is the misuse of good motivations that people have, not wanting to upset each other and wanting to cooperate, but it's all being terribly misused. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you say labeling as well. There's something else that happened because I, no- I noticed that a number of times it was a very, very liberal institution that I went to, liberal theologically, and a number of times the word evangelical was used just negatively for, for no apparent reason. I mean, for example, somebody said something like, well, you know, what, what would you do in a situation where you're the minister of the church and you deliver a sermon and you get to the door and then some evangelical comes up to you and complains? And I thought to myself, well, why are you assuming it's an evangelical who complains? That seems to do two things. One is that it says that we in this room, none of us are evangelicals. We're all liberals. And it's the evangelicals who are irrational and cause the trouble. And that was just with one little example like that. Yes. What I do is I throw it back in their face and I say, oh, you mean stereotyping, which is what you're doing right now. <laughs> I wish I had you there at the time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, they hate the word stereotyping. Oh, stereotyping's terrible. But labeling, well, that's OK. I mean, it makes no sense. But people don't stop to think about it. They're, they're caught off guard. Absolutely. And they have a piece of paper they've got to write on as it's going around the room at the same time. Yes, indeed. Um, You mentioned uh, Sun Tzu about his uh, psychological warfare techniques, and you you mentioned things like uh, confusion techniques, but you also mentioned the abandonment of etiquette, which I thought was a fascinating thing. Yes, we are past the point now where etiquette can be used on our uh, position. I mean, wars are not based on etiquette, and we're in a war. We may not realize it, but we are in a war right now. And wars are not won based on the rules of etiquette. Right, indeed. So we have to learn, not sort of morally influenced by that which we are finding ourselves against, but to be hard-nosed about it, really. Exactly. I mean, when you catch your uh, facilitator or one of these people, manipulators, in an oversimplification or a smear or uh, giving a false analogy or making a hasty generalization or a straw man argument or an appeal to fear or appeal to popularity. You should call them on it. So really you're saying we should become sort of more savvy about this. I mean, I was thinking that Jesus had that in Matthew 10:16. He said, look, I'm sending you out into the middle of a pack of wolves. Therefore, be cunning like serpents, but as harmless as doves. Exactly. Those two things together, this isn't the Christian meek and mild, is it? It's, it's making sure that you're still being morally upright, but you're being, you're being cunning in, in a positive sense. Yeah, you, you don't yeah. have to be nasty, but you do have to respond. And certainly Jesus responded. I mean, when they gave him the coin, says, who does this coin belong to? And he, and he says, well, that coin has Caesar's picture on it. Render unto uh, Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render unto God the things that are God. This is not nasty. No, indeed. It's very, it's very, very clever. And, very clever. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I must ask you about this dimension of the New World Order, which we did touch on before, but I want to go into it in slightly more depth with respect to the philosopher Georg Hegel, who you mentioned a number of times, and in fact, uh, both Dean Gotcha and Nikki Rapana, who was on this program, both brought up this very, very influ- influential philosopher. And I'm going to put the question to you in this kind of way, that based on those interviews and my own looking into this subject, I've identified that Hegel is important both to the process of change in education the techniques of actually bringing about change in people's thinking but also influential with respect to the ultimate goals that this kind of process could be directed towards now in hegel's uh, time that would have been the end of history as he called it the, i guess would be the you know the prussian state the perfect state but if we extrapolate from that in the modern context we could easily see that as being the world state which would be in view here so what i want to ask you here is do you see that hegel's thought is influential both on the way education itself has changed in the classroom and also influential in terms of these big goals towards which those people who are manipulating the system want to take the world. Yes, he laid the groundwork, there's no doubt about it, because he talks about the thesis and the anti, and I I talk about it too. I say that uh, encountering these people, we first need to go into a meeting 
uh, well, the very first thing you have to do is realize that the reason they called the meeting may not be the actual reason that it's when you get in there that it, that it's about. But uh, assuming that the, you know what the topic is going to be on, you need to say to yourself constantly what your opinion is about that. And even with all the chatter and noise and distraction going on around you, you need to stick to your thesis and say, what is my thesis about this? And what your opposition is going to do is try to get the group to tell them what the antithesis is. In other words, the opposite viewpoint. And once you do that, then he has two things to work with. The manipulator has two things to work with. And he's going to try to make a consensus out of that. And how he's going to do it is to say, okay, he's going to create a synthesis of the two, the thesis and the antithesis. He's going to find a supposed middle ground. It won't be really a middle ground. It'll be whatever his employers who hired him want it to be. Mm-hmm. But he's going to try to move the group to accept a synthesis of two opposing viewpoints, then call that what the community really wants or what the committee really wants or what the focus group or task force really wants. And he's going to present that to his supervisors or uh, employers or maybe even the Senate and the Congress or the parliament in your case, as what the community really wants, even though it may not be at all. It may be engineered. Indeed. You bring up the word community, and that fits like hand in glove with what Nikki Rapana, indeed Michael Shaw, was talking about communitarian ideas and how those can be manipulated to political ends with the overall goal, really, certainly with Agenda 21, of bringing in some form of uh, universal government in which the supposed desires of the community are used to bring in authoritarian rule and to override what people think on the local level. Well, right. Remember, they're not thinking for themselves anyway. They're thinking we're all in this together. They have already been moved to a group mindset. So what they think as individuals, namely, I have brought my child up to believe in being a moral individual or being a a think for myself or whatever it is. And you're not supposed to think what you teach your child anymore. You're supposed to think in a group setting, and that means that the community way across town that you've never had any interaction with, suddenly you are moved into that hypothetical place, and you have to consider them in all of your, in the conclusions that you come to, so that helps this phony consensus along, which is what Hegel knew all the time. Mm. So how do we, you've already said something about how we can push back about this, to use the title of your book, but um, how do we resist this uh, sort of phony consensus that's being built all around us? So this is the title of your latest book. It, it pulls together many of the thoughts that you've had over the years. And uh, as you, you said before the interview, you told me that it's a kind of a, a textbook. So it's got a, a vast amount of information in there to help us. So could you, you summarize, how can we deal with this? Well, first, you have to learn to recognize the lead-in lines that the agitator, provocateur, or whoever it is, uses. And like everyone here knows why you are against whatever it is. See, everyone knows that you are a fundamentalist. Okay, that's a smear. Even fundamentalists like you, even evangelicals like you would know blah, 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 blah. And so... Uh, There's several lead-in lines that I give throughout the book, and you need to memorize some of those, and they should be a red flag when you hear them. And then, of course, I start giving ways to counter this, like qualifying your argument, noticing that cause and effect is out of sync, and in other words, the conclusion does not logically follow the hypothesis or theory given or the reasoning is out of whack 
You learn a little bit of logic. You know, people used to take a course in logic in high school. They don't anymore. You learned about false assumptions, maligned cause effects, dubious evidence, and contradictory data. You don't learn that anymore. It's a great loss. It really is. It is. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and there's other things like hasty generalizations. I also say the smear. You have to recognize that. Even a child would see. And I put in uh, uh, parentheses that seat time in a classroom doesn't equate to proficiency in subject matter. That's fine. But even a child would see is what you should focus on because the person has smeared you. They have called you childlike. And people are not getting this. They don't understand how they're being manipulated because they haven't learned the techniques of logic. Yes, I mean, it would be really, really helpful for people to know some basic things like the argumentum ad hominem yeah. fallacy. So that you, exactly that kind of thing. Or you only say that because you're a whatever it might be, which of course is irrational because your argument might be very good. It doesn't matter whether you're an evangelical or a liberal or a Marxist or whatever you are. It's the argument itself that you're supposed to be looking at. There could be a whole list of those. The, ad, the argument ad populum. Oh, well, most people think so and so. Well, so what? It doesn't prove that it's right. But I, I agree with you. Many people don't know these basic logical fallacies no, and it's very don't. powerful if they do it is powerful and in fact 40 years ago you didn't hear the term evangelical much if you think about it mm. what happened was that during uh the 1979 takeover of the embassy of a u.s embassy the word fundamentalist became got to the forefront in the context of islamic fundamentalists but then they thought hey you know what that's a good idea. We could start calling Christians fundamentalists. And that would mean that put it in the context of they've got a, 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 a brain cell loose somewhere. And so slogans, and that is a slogan, are Absolutely. a way of smearing people. I agree. So instead of it meaning people who believe in the fundamentals or that uh, in the 1920s theological movement, the, the fundamentalist movement, it now means extremist. And that's been a change of meaning. Right. They change the meaning of things, of words you thought you knew. Mm. So I'm teaching techniques and then I teach, OK, we, we what we do is we move to practical exercises in deflecting manipulation. And I have various scenarios that I ask people to uh, practice. I have drills and rehearsals. And but the point is. They have to learn which principle of psych war all these different scenarios represent. They have to uh, know what certain team members in this group did to gain initial advantage, how somebody could be readily acknowledged by a change agent and other people are not readily acknowledged. In other words, they call on some people and not others because they saw a raised eyebrow at the beginning of, of their talk and said, ah, oh, this person isn't with me, so I'm going to uh, ostracize him right off the, you know, right at the get-go. So they learn these kind of things and then they practice them in one of the other chapters and then personal attacks and these usually are people sent by foundations and associations and non-governmental organizations to anybody, say, running for school board or um, maybe a higher office than that. But they start at the low level. And if it looks like a uh, independent minded person, uh, a, a really thinking person, a conservative person, traditionalist person is going to win, then they send people in from the outside to try to uh, deflect uh, anything they're saying and uh, shift the loyalties against them. Yeah. I'm sure to people who have not experienced this kind of thing, this can sound very uh, fanciful, really. Surely this kind of thing can't actually be going on in the real world. But I'm sitting here today speaking to you as somebody who's actually experienced this in quite a stark way, really, about five years ago or so. And it was really, really disturbing. I did find my personality being stepped on i did find myself not being accepted as part of the group and eventually i did in fact come out of that situation as i explained earlier on it was very painful it really is going on and in the context of the methodist church which this in fact was i 
know exactly why it was happening. It was done for politically correct reasons in order to keep a broad church together. It's just to keep the establishment together. Of the, you've got liberals and you've got evangelicals and we want to keep them all together. And the only way you can do that really is by having this communitarian spirit where truth is not discussed and everybody keeps down, suppresses what they really think so that we can all shake hands and keep along together. And it, it really, in the end, I think isn't going to work. I, I think it's just going to lead to a complete watering down of the preaching of the gospel in the Methodist church. And so I'm saying that I have experienced it. I connect very much with what you're saying, and I think your advice to people is absolutely fantastic. And I'm very glad that you're doing what you're doing and writing this. Um, could you tell us how we can actually get hold of your book? What's the best way of, of finding this information out and actually ordering a copy well it's available on the online bookstore the big one amazon and it's also by skyhorse publishing company so that's skyhorsepublishing.com you can get it that way and uh then at barnesandnoble.com they uh, several of the bookstores yeah. have it now and in fact if they go on my website which is beverlyekman.com and that's e-a-k-m-a-n it's a really weird spelling but there's a rolling covers of my book on the bottom and they can just uh click on one of those covers and it will go in to the i think amazon it goes into amazon or one of the others that published the book like i say there's many other ways to go in and find the book now because it's officially out yeah, and I really do think that it is something that we should read. I haven't read it myself, and I do intend to. And I, it's one of those things that can be applicable to so many areas of life. Well, obviously, I've been talking about my own experience with the church, but that is, that's a very parochial example, really, because it applies to so much that's going on. As I say, Michael Shaw was talking about Agenda 21, and there are these, you know, so many ways in which the New World Order is being constructed around us, and we must not allow that to happen. And your writing, I think, is a very good set of techniques that we can have under our our belt to resist the way this is happening in, in many areas of life. So I do thank you ever so much, uh, Beverly Ekman, for coming on and sharing with us from all your research and all your advice. It's been great to speak with you. Thank you very much indeed for sharing and sparing all this time to speak to us. Well, well you're a great interviewer, and I, I thank you too. And, and you'd be interested to know, just as a side thing here, that I saw it in the church too. Uh-huh. I saw it in the uh, Presbyterian Church USA, and it was a 2,000-person uh, member congregation. I won't say what it, what it was about, but they had a meeting, and I watched four people work over a 2,000-member congregation and get them on their side when probably none of the people that walked in were on their side to begin with. Wow. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing, but... I'm not surprised now. <laughs> I was so taken with that. <laughs> yeah, I right. had to see, I yeah. had to, to investigate this. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And then if we think for a moment that those people who have an authoritarian attitude to life don't know this and realize the power of this tool, then we are fools. <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed being on your show. Thank you ever so much for coming on. It's been wonderful to speak to you. Okay. Good to speak to you too. Bye-bye now.